the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. In most modern Bibles, these books are separate, but that division happened long after it was written. It was originally a unified work written by a single author. The story is set after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and its temple and took many of the people into exile. And this book picks up about 50 years later and tells the return of some Israelites to Jerusalem and then what happened when they rebuilt the city and their lives there. Specifically, the book focuses on three key leaders who led the rebuilding efforts. You have Zerubbabel, then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And the book's design focuses on the efforts of each leader. Zerubbabel leads a large group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Then about 60 years later, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem to teach the Torah and rebuild the community. And then he's followed by Nehemiah, who leads the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. And these three stories are designed to be parallel. Each begins with the king of Persia prompted by God to send the leader to Jerusalem and he offers resources and support and then each leader encounters opposition in their efforts which they then overcome but in a way that leads to a strange anticlimax in each of the three parts. Story of God. For some of you who have been with us Well, from the beginning, this is our 21st chapter. We started way back in Genesis, where we saw God, well, create a perfect environment and put two individuals into that garden so that they might be able to flourish. They might be able to enjoy God's amazing relationship. Well, way back then, they chose to go their own way, to do their own thing, thinking that they might just be a little bit smarter than God. And as a result, it broke a relationship. Well, all the way through from Genesis, and now as we end up at the end of today in Malachi, we're finding out a a God. A God who has been pursuing. A good, good father pursuing. Well, the clueless and the self-focused. Don't you just love movies or books with this plot? You know, the one guy is so enamored with himself and so, well, kind of trying to find life all kinds of different relationships, all kinds of different activities. But there's this one gal. Oh, she loves him. And she's so good for him. And she's so stable. And she loves him. And all the way through the movie or the book, you're going, that guy's a dork. What's his problem? Doesn't he see it? She is amazing. You will never, ever, ever get better than this. Well, in some ways, this is the story of mankind. Over and over, we have this loving Father that desires to give us life, to walk with us during life, during the highs and the lows. And oftentimes we flitter off. We think this will satisfy us, or that will satisfy us, or this relationship, or this toy, or this. And you just keep going in that direction. And we, well, looking down, saying, you are such a dork. God is so good. God is so big. God is so loving. God is so caring. He wants to give you life. This is a beautiful mural which which tells of God's great love for us and the extent that He will go in order to get us back to have a relationship. Well, today we finish part one of the story. The Old Testament comes to an end, focusing on three rebuilding projects. A few weeks back, we focused on the rebuilding of the temple under Zerubbabel's leadership. Today, we're going to focus on rebuilding the community under Ezra, 
where God literally rebuilds the lives of his people, and then the rebuilding of a wall underneath Nehemiah's leadership. Israel has been rightly disciplined by God, and they are finally ready to listen in our text for today. The scripture tells us that, well, the Israelites are sitting on the edge of their seats. <laughs> this is good. This is so amazing. I can't wait to dig in, but let's pray. Let's do that. Father, we do come before you and recognize, if we're honest, that there are so many times we choose to live our lives apart from you. Father, we won't probably shout this, but by the way we behave, we act like we do know more than you. Like your word is, well, it's just a bunch of rules and regulations instead of a love letter. Father, would you, as we close up this part of our study, that, that you would, well, whisper, shout, encourage us today. Would you help us see once again how amazing you are? Open our eyes. Take away the blind spots that we have. Father, would you and you alone reign? Would we submit to your leadership in every way? Would we enjoy abundant living? Father, we not only pray for all those in this building and all those who are teaching downstairs, but we pray for those in this town, in this county, in our country, all over the world that are teaching and preaching and praising and praying. God, we know the enemy is strong. But what's so exciting is that you are way stronger. We know the enemy is a liar, but you are a God of truth. We know God in, in many ways. If I am, again, completely honest, I was so convicted this week. I was reading how the Israelites respond and there were just such times of great joy, but there's also such agony. And God, it just feels like my life. We pray, dear Lord, that you would give us strength and power and perspective, that we would leave here energized and encouraged. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Our story opens up in 458 B.C. And again, as I've had different emails from some of you and talked with some of you about the messages, there's a little bit of, Rick, why are you bringing up these dates all the time? I mean, really, can't we just, is there just a few dates that you need to know? And, and the truth is there probably are a few dates that you need to know to, to interpret the Scriptures well. But it's so important, especially as we end up, that we just understand the chronological order here. So I'm not asking any of you to be historical geniuses. But it will help you to be able to interpret this scripture better. You'll see some of the timeline. You'll, you'll understand a little bit more of how patient and wonderful and gracious our God is and really how crazy and neglectful the Israelites are at times. So please, I'm, I'm not trying to drill into you some history, but I think, again, it will be so very, very helpful. The first wave that literally returned back to Jerusalem, we talked about two weeks ago, happened in 538. It was covered in Ezra chapters 1 through 5. And during this time, God sends prophets... Haggai and Zechariah. And there's this revival that happens. God's people aren't necessarily listening, but they do. And they come together and they build or finish the temple. Amazing story. 
Then last week we focused on Esther, and Esther happens between the first wave and the second wave, about 483 B.C. Now the second wave, and this is where we're going to jump in today, returns to Jerusalem about 458 B.C. Let me tell you the story of Ezra 7 and 8. Would you open your Bibles? to Ezra chapter 7. We'll start there, and then we're going to end up in Nehemiah, which is the next book. So open your Bibles or flat screens, if you would, to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra 7. I'm going to start reading verse 6. This Ezra was a scribe who was well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given the people of Israel. He came up to Jerusalem from Babylon, and the king gave him everything he asked for because the gracious hand of God, or the Lord, his God, was on him. Some of the people of Israel, as well as some of the priests and the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and temple servants, traveled up to Jerusalem with him in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes' reign. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in August of that year. He had arranged to leave Babylon on April 8th, the first year or the first day of the new year. And he arrived at Jerusalem on August 4th. For the gracious hand of his God was on him. This was, verse 10, critical. I encourage you to underline this. This was because Ezra had determined, highlight, box that, bold it, to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. We find out this Ezra was a scribe and that God's gracious hand was on Ezra. When he was about prepared to go back to Jerusalem, King Artaxerxes gave him everything that Ezra asked for. And then in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, we find out why God's gracious hand was on Ezra. But Ezra determined, long before he even made this trip, but Ezra determined to study, to obey, and to teach. To make sure he knew what God's Word had to say. To obey God's Word, and then to teach God's Word to others. So the scriptures tell us that Ezra at this moment gathered the leaders and encouraged them, hey, why don't you come back to Jerusalem with me? And as soon as he did, the scriptures tell us that he gathered them together, they fasted, they humbled themselves, they literally prayed so that God would protect them in this journey. And he did. If you read through Ezra chapter 7 and into 8, you'll find out Ezra had been telling the king, we have an amazing God. We have a big God. We have a God that protects us. We have a God that is so, so big. And so the scriptures tell us it's, it's kind of cool. He didn't even ask the king for guards. Now again, you know, if we have a trip and we want to, you know, take a trip to Indiana, it's not like we call up the Fox Lake, you know, police station and say, hey, can you kind of give me an escort? Uh, I'm leaving town. I just want to make sure I'm safe. They would uh, probably take your number and uh, have someone visit you thinking you're a little bit odd. All right. But this was not an uncommon request. There were bandits and there were all kinds of of folks that could attack. But you know what? Ezra said, you know what? I've been telling everyone how big God is, how cool God is, how wonderful God is. I I better, uh, um, okay, God, we're going to trust you. And he fasts and he prays and he humbles himself. And he says, God, you got to take care of us because you're a big God. And they leave 
And so with great faith in God, they walked forward. And the Scriptures tell us that the whole caravan arrived safely. Now again, if you're following this story, this is all good, right? They get to Jerusalem. It's the second wave. All these people are there. The temple is there. They should be rejoicing. Well, let me just say this. Things weren't good in Jerusalem at this time. If you look at Ezra chapter 9, I'm going to start reading verse 1. And when these things had been done, in other words, they got to Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders came to me, to Ezra, and said, Many of the people of Israel, even some of the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the other peoples living in the land, Ezra. They have taken up detestable practices of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Egyptians and the Amorites. Oh boy. For the men of Israel have married women from these people. And they've taken them as wives for their sons. So the holy race has become polluted by these mixed marriages. Worse yet, Ezra, listen to us. The leaders and the officials have led the way in this outrage. Oh. Now, most of us, again, now, now bear with me. Oh, okay, so <laughs> they didn't marry Jewish girls. I, I, okay. <laughs> What's the big deal? It was a big deal. Look what happens in the next verse. Verse 3. When I heard this, Ezra said, I tore my cloak and my shirt, pulled hair from my head and my beard, and sat down utterly shocked, appalled, disgusted. Then, then, and I circled that, all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel those who felt the same way, those who have been appalled, watching leaders even go out and just flaunt their freedom. They came and sat with me because of this outrage committed by the returned exiles. And I sat there utterly appalled until the time of the, se- uh, of the evening sacrifice. 58 years ago, things were good. Not so in 458. It took only 58 years for Israel to compromise, to forget God's way, to literally do everything that is talked about in the Scriptures as evil and wrong. Ezra's upset. He's upset. Wow. I guess one of the things that happen in Scripture, when I read something and I read a really godly man is, is repenting, he's praying, he's ripping his clothes, he's sitting there not even able to function. And my response is, Really? Ezra, come on. I have to stop. I have to look at the scriptures. I have to ask something. Has my culture blinded me a little bit? If you read this and you were casual toward it, my guess is you don't get it. That's all. And when I don't get something, I need to stop. Lord, I'm not seeing this. Lord, I'm not responding in the same way that Ezra's responding. Lord, Lord, help me see. Help me see. Well, at this time, as you read in Ezra chapter 9, starting at verse 5, This is so cool. I fell to my knees. I lifted my hands up to the Lord and I prayed. And if you read through that, and some of you again are preparing by reading through this text before you come, you hear Ezra pouring out his heart. 
And he's repenting and he's praying for forgiveness and he's understanding God's mercy and he's recognizing we have sinned greatly against you, God. Again, you may not agree with God's ways, but, but this was an abomination. It was wrong. These were the folks that led them away from true worship of God. Just like many things we have in our lives. But then Ezra models repentance. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. If you're right in the side of your Bibles, you can just say this. You don't know what repentance looks like? This is a definition of how you deal with sin. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and lying down on the ground in front of the temple of God, a very large crowd of people from Israel, men, women, and children, gathered with him and wept bitterly with him. The end of verse 2, but in spite of this, there was hope for Israel. He said, let us now make a covenant with our God to divorce our pagan wives and send them away with their children. We will follow the advice given, to you, uh, given by you and by others who respect the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law of God. Get up, for it is your duty to tell us how to proceed in setting things straight. We are behind you, Ezra, so be strong and take action. So Ezra stood up and demanded that the leaders of the priests and the Levites and all the people of Israel swear that they would do as Shekinah had said. And they all swore a solemn oath. Then Ezra left the front of the temple and went to the room of Jehoiakim, son of Elisheb. He spent the night there still upset, without eating or drinking anything. He was still in mourning because of the unfaithfulness of the returned exiles. Oh, if you've been part of this church or part of understanding, divorce is never God's plan. It happens. I know that. But, but it's not part of God's original plan. That's not how God looks at marriage. You say, well, it seems odd, doesn't it? I mean, you're going to, you, you have kids. You have a wife. You, what, what are you asking them to do? They're asking them, you know what? I have disobeyed God. And I am going to make it right. It's going to rip my heart out. I, I don't even know if I have courage to do this. But they said, you know what, Ezra? We want you to do what is right. We want you to lead us in this. And we know it's going to be hard. And if you continue to read chapter 10, it took three months of dealing with this sin. Over and over, they'd go to tent to tent, house to household. And they would say, this is how we're dealing with sin. I have rebelled against God. It is wrong. I am going to make it right. And it is so cool because literally, at least at this time, people are responsive to the word. They're responsive to godly leadership. And as a result of their disobedience, so many lives are messed up. And, and that's what you're going to see all the way through the Scriptures. Anytime we think our way is better than God's way, it never is. It always breaks lives. It breaks relationships. It breaks up churches. It breaks up, you name it. It breaks sit up. Now the third wave comes. And the third wave returns to Jerusalem about 443 B.C. under the leadership of this guy, Nehemiah. And our story now focuses on Nehemiah. If you could, look at Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to read the first four verses. Nehemiah chapter 1. And we get introduced to this godly, successful, trustworthy layman. All right, he's not part of the priesthood. He's not part of the clergy. He's not a prophet. He's a normal guy. In fact, he's a builder. Well, he's going to be a builder. Right now, he's got kind of a, shall we say a cush job? All right. I, I mean, he probably could die quite 
quickly, but, but it's a pretty good job. I, I mean, if you want a job, and, and let's read. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was in the fortress of Susa. Hananah, one of my brothers, came to visit me and some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them, this is Nehemiah, about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who have returned to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down. The gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down, wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the Lord. Again, for me, okay, I get news. My brother comes and says, hey, Rick, the gates, the fence up by Silver Birch, they have been torn down. I will look at Dave, who's the director up there, and say, wow, that's bad, Dave. It is. I'm going to sit down and... No, it's not something insignificant. This is something walls around a city were critical. Jerusalem was a special place. And although they had rebuilt the temple, they were still so vulnerable. Nehemiah apparently thought they should have been built. Nehemiah thought that things would have been gone, would have been better at this moment. But he gets the news. Nehemiah, things aren't so good. The walls are still down. We're very vulnerable. Enemies are all around us. We cannot worship the way we want. We cannot function the way God intended. And so what does he do? He sits down and he starts praying. These prayers are amazing. And and again, I will encourage you to go and read them. But at the very end of the chapter, he says this, Lord, grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put into his heart to be kind to me. So Nehemiah prays this crazy prayer, literally. And then it just mentions, oh, by the way, I'm the king's cupbearer. Uh, The king's cupbearer is probably the most trusted of all the people in the land. He ate every meal with the king. He would taste the wine. He would taste the barbecued chicken. He would taste all the different things, making sure it was absolutely safe and then give it to the king. All right. So they had conversations and so on. But like you and me, probably we got something in our crawl. We got to act on it right away, right? But you know what's interesting? Nehemiah literally spent the next four months praying. Didn't say a thing. He just started praying. He said, Lord, I hope the king is going to be merciful. I hope the thing is going to, king's going to be merciful. And even wondering, getting up, oh, today am I going to kind of talk to the king? What's going on? Literally, four months after hearing about Jerusalem, look at chapter 2. Early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. I had never appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you so sad? Why don't, why, (laughs) you don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified. Now he's been praying about this for four months, folks. Okay. But all of a sudden he got a little chicken. But I replied, long live the king. That's what you just do, right? How can I not be sad? For the king, for the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And the king said, well, how can I help you? Okay, I'm, I'm liking the way this is going, but what's so cool? Again, look in your scriptures. The next line, with a prayer to the God of heaven. And you guys all know what that is. 
Lord, he just asked me that question. We've been talking about it a long time. I have this plan. Here it goes. Would you bless it? He is so connected with God. So connected with God. And then he gives the whole, he goes, well, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to be able to go back. I'd like to be able to rebuild the walls. I need some material. How about a king? Oh, he prayerfully gave the plan and made his request known. And the gracious hand of God was on Nehemiah. Again, folks, you've heard that at least three times now. I'd go back and start underlining this. This is a man who prays. This is a man who seeks God's face. This is a man who patiently listens to God. God's gracious hand is on him. All right? He evaluated the task. He met with leaders in Jerusalem. He focused on God. And in Nehemiah chapter 3, the work of rebuilding the wall begins. And we're not going to read through chapter 3. It's very entertaining, though. I would encourage you to do it. But what is so cool is that everybody helps. They did not hire all the masons to come in. They did not hire all the professionals. The scriptures tell us that priests, Levites, goldsmiths, you know, the people that make those nice... Necklaces? Yeah, okay. Merchants. Perfumers. (laughs) I know someone's got to do it, right? But perfumer? Okay. A perfumer. Sons, daughters, politicians, along with the trades. They all removed rubble. They all carried material. And I'm pretty sure, maybe not All of them used a hammer, but most of them did. But the scriptures tell us, next chapter, Nehemiah 4, opposition arises, both external and internal. Now, anytime you do a project for God, anytime you listen to God, you always know the enemy is going to rise up, and you always know there's going to be opposition. And it's sort of normal for our opposition, of course, to come from Well, the enemy, the outside. And that's what happens first. These guys start tossing out words. Oh, you poor, feeble, inept Jews. Do you really think you're going to build this wall? I mean, really. This is just not going to happen. In fact, when you get done with your wall, if a fox walks on the top of it, it's just going to topple down. Can you imagine? You're hauling, you're carrying, you're building. And these people all around you, oh, that doesn't look so good. Oh, that's going to fall down. Oh, you know, hope the wind doesn't blow tonight. Yeah. But what does Nehemiah do? And you can see in chapter 4, he prays. He goes, you know what, Lord? You're going to have to protect us. I hope these people never listen to the enemy. I'm going to pray. So the scriptures tell us about half the wall was built with great enthusiasm. As it is with every project. Whether you're painting a room. No matter what it is. You know, you could be restoring a vehicle. And the bottom line is, is that that first half is so much fun. It really is. But the finish to finish. And at this moment, half the wall is built. Everything seems to be going great. People start to get discouraged. More so than ever. So Nehemiah starts praying again. He starts praying. Do you get the picture here? Opposition comes, he prays. Discouragement happens, he prays. He prays, and he prays, and he prays. Oh, Ezra had God's gracious hand on him. Oh, and anytime there's a situation, he prays, he fasts, he mourns. He prays. He's so dependent upon God. But here's the part that hurt. 
insiders started to complain. Those that were building the wall. The Jews that were there. They were discouraged. They saw they were only half done. And the scriptures tell us we're tired. We don't want to haul away any more rubble. We've been hauling rubble like crazy. We're afraid too. There's people out there that want to hurt us. And so Nehemiah sets up his team well. He arms some guards. And he speaks truth to them. That God is going to give you strength. And God is going to fight your war. So work resumes. But this time it looks a little different. They've got their nail pouches. But they also have their swords next to them. So they start working hammers and swords. And just as this continues, Nehemiah continues to prepare prepare them and to enable them. And the truth is shouted to them every single day. God is going to fight your battle. God's going to give you strength to finish this wall. Do you understand how important this is? Let's finish. Let's finish. Let's finish. God will give you the strength. Oh, they worked long hours. They sacrificed. In fact, in in Nehemiah chapter 4, it's kind of hilarious. Nehemiah, I don't know if this is a side note or not. He just goes, yeah, a whole lot of us, we never changed our clothes. Yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking. Did you ever work around a carpenter for a while? You know, or a bricklayer, or any one of the trades? Don't they come home just smelling nice? Oh, you know what? I'm, I'm a little busy today. I'm just not... <laughs> Look at Danny. Have you ever seen Danny after... I'm sorry, Danny. It just... Sometimes you need a shower. You know what I'm saying, buddy? Yeah, you know? But, but you're full of all that, you know. I, I can't take my clothes off. I, 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 I have to stay prepared. I have to stay focused. Now, it didn't say how long they didn't change clothes. But even in a couple days, I'm, I'm thinking it's not so good. But they're sacrificing. They're so focused. This is so important to us. Isn't this cool? God said, do it. Let's do it. But... The inside distractions continue. And Nehemiah, okay, Nehemiah chapter 5. All right? Some people start coming to him and says, Nehemiah, I don't think we can help anymore just simply because, hey, we're selling our daughters. The interest is too much. We have to make some money. And it's kind of internal, kind of weird things happening in Israel. Nehemiah looks at this injustice. He he says, hey, quit charging your fellow Jews' interest. We're trying to focus here. Would you grow up? In fact, in Nehemiah chapter 5, and this is so cool, verse 15, Nehemiah says this, I don't act this way because I fear God. God. You know, it's normal maybe to do this and that and so on. But when you're in the middle, when you're building this wall, let's focus. And let's fear God and let's come together and let's be unified. And then Nehemiah, who had to be quite wealthy, after all, he had that good job of, you know, tasting the king's wine, modeled what generosity looks like. Oh, but this is so cool. And we're going to move fast now. All right. But in Nehemiah chapter 6 through 10, the wall is completed. The wall is finally finished. In Nehemiah chapter 6, starting at verse 15. So on October 2nd, the wall was finished. Just 52 days after we began, when our enemies had surrounded the, uh, and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. 
they realized this work had been done with the help of God. God gets the glory. It's amazing. Then six days later, after this wall is completed, Nehemiah chapter 8. This is so cool. It really is. In October, verse 1, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. So on October 8th, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and the women and all the children old enough to understand. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning till noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. They basically said this, six days later, this was so amazing. We need to be fed. Ezra, come on, we're going to all gather. Let's read the scriptures. And from early morning to noon, Ezra read the scriptures. And this is what happened. Look at verse 5. Ezra stood on the platform in full view of the people. When they saw him open the book, they all rose to their feet. Hey folks, sometimes... It's hard to stand for four songs. You know what I'm saying? These guys, they had such reverence. They stood up, and for hours and hours and hours they stood. Then verse 6, Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people shouted, Amen, Amen, yes, yes, that's right. They lifted their hands, they bowed down, they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Oh, and then what happens? This is so cool. Ezra's reading. Everyone's getting it. They're just, this kind of revival's going on. There's worship. There's praise. But they're going, I'm not getting all of it. So the next verse, verse 7, what Ezra does is he has the clergy or the Levites. And he says, hey, there's some people not getting it. Why don't you meet with them? So what happens, he reads these scriptures. The people aren't getting it all. The Levites come in in verses 7 and 8. And they explain what Ezra was just reading. Probably at least the book of Deuteronomy. It could have been more. And then what happens in verse 9. Chapter 8, verse 9. Then Nehemiah the governor... Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, Don't mourn or weep on such a day as this. For today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. In other words, they hear it read. The Levites are explaining it. They saw their sin. They saw how they had disobeyed God. They saw how they were missing the mark. They saw... All these things, and they just begin to cry, and they begin to weep. And the scriptures tell us that Nehemiah comes and says, hold it, hold it. There's a time for weeping, but what I want you to know, stop weeping. It's a time literally to celebrate. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And the scriptures tell us they all go home. The next day they come back, and Ezra meets with the family, family leaders, all the heads of the household. And in chapter 8, starting at verse 13 and 14, they start reading the scriptures just to the heads of the household. Okay, you need more instruction. We're going to keep doing this. This is exciting. And they discover some more areas of disobedience. And they choose to obey. Three weeks later, they come back. All right. Three weeks later, they come back. Look at Nehemiah chapter 9. This is amazing. On October 31st, it was not Halloween for them, okay, the people assembled again. And this time they fasted and dressed in burlap and sprinkled dust on their heads. They came prepared, okay, to receive something, just so you know. 
Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners as they confessed their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. They, look at verse 3, they remained standing in place for three hours while the book of the law of the Lord, their God, was read to them. Then, for three more hours, they confessed their sins and worshiped the Lord. Holy Shmoe. They couldn't get enough. Give us your word, Father. And, and when, when we hear something we're not listening, one little thing, I, I'm going to confess. And watch all the way through the Scriptures. Confession happens and worship follows. Confession, worship. I talked a little bit about preparing. One of the things before you walk into this auditorium every Sunday is maybe a prayer, Father, I don't know if I've offended you. But Lord, if I am going to worship you with all of my heart and all my soul and all of my mind, I want to be clean. I want to listen to you. I want to be able to raise my hands recognizing that you are God. We do that often at communion, and we ought. But every time we meet with God, a normal practice, confess your sin. Life is often a life of repentance. We offend a holy God and we confess our sin. As we open up God's word, we see it. And then the scripture tells this, that the people vow. We're going to obey. Nehemiah 10. We're going to obey everything. We're going to obey the law. And you can read through that the ma- about marriage and Sabbath, um, about tithes and neglecting the temple. You're going, whoa, this is a great story, Rick. And we're almost done. We're almost done, but we're not done. Ten years later. Ten years later. God's people were a mess. God raises up two leaders. Disobedience was rampant at this time. And somewhere in this time frame, This is where God sends the prophet Malachi. It's the last book in your Old Testament. And it's a book that carries such weight. Because the revival was short-lived, the priests were irreverent. They were disobedient. They were cynical. They were hypocritical. They were offensive. The people started marrying foreigners again, indifferent and cheating God, especially with their tithes, and their offering, and this renewed covenant was broken. Oh, is this not like us? Then Nehemiah chapter 13 returns 10 years later. He sees the temple's laws that were broken. And the temple was being neglected. He saw the Sabbath was being broken, actually profaned. He saw that men were continually marrying foreign women. But Nehemiah listened to God. He made things right. And then there's just silence. If you go back to Malachi in the last chapter, In the last chapter of the Old Testament, you will find out that Malachi introduces us to a Savior, the one the Jews had been waiting for. Jesus literally doesn't come for 400 more years, okay? And when he comes, he surprises everybody, right? Like, why would a king get born? This is weird. But that's who God is. You know, I hope you have enjoyed our journey through the Old Testament. A 39-volume library filled with stories of adventure and heartbreak and triumph and power and disappointment and struggle and war and peace. Now next week, we move into the New Testament. It's finally time for us to meet the Savior, the one we've been waiting for. But because of this season, next week is Palm Sunday, all right? We're going to do a few things out of chronological order, and we'll get back into it right after Easter. But let me remind you, there's two things we do at the end of each of these messages. 
There's an upper story. And the upper story is God is faithful. He still pursues today. Even though so many of us behave like Israel. We, we worship God with all of our hearts. We repent like crazy. And it just takes 10 years, 10 months, 10 days. And we forget. And yet God pursues us. And God loves us. And God is gracious. And God is loving. Oh, God wants a relationship so badly with each one of us. It amazes us. And then the lower story. God's gracious hand can be on you. It can. It can be on me. As we listen to God, as we respond to God, as we weep over our sin and mourn for breaking the covenant over and over with our King. Remember this is that compromise always brings disaster. It always does. Well, God, she's really, really, really cute. So, and she can cook. Nice. And oh man, does she have a good job. Nice. Does she know Jesus? Does she love Jesus? Is she a God follower with all of her heart? Wow. <laughs> There's so much more. Compromise. Extra work extra toys, extra activities. What are the things that take our love away from God? First of all, just little, little by little. And lastly, true worship always follows repentance. True worship follows repentance. Really, if you come today and just hope and have a great worship experience, which I, I think you will, It's amazing. But if we don't confess before we walk through those doors and we don't come clean, there isn't any way you'll be able to worship God with all of your heart, with all your soul. Grudges could be the way you treated your husband even as you drove to church today. It's important. Repentance happens often. Because we're selfish people, may we repent often. Let's pray before we turn to Jesus. Father, once again, we thank you. You are a great God. And honestly, Lord, this this message makes me sad because it's me. So much of the time, it's, it's me thinking I know what's best. Lord, make me, make us a people that repent often, that see sin and rebellion the way you do, that we would fast and pray when we're surrounded by the enemy, discouraged, dismayed. Oh, would you be more a part of our life every day, dear God, And may we worship you because you are worthy of worship. We pray this in your name.